Welcome to the Perp Web Podcast, hosted by Joe Bosch. So I want to introduce you to our guest faculty, who is also our brand new nurse ECMO specialist, uh, Vicki Carlisle. She is a CVICU nurse. Uh, she's a uh, got her uh, ADN in 2009 at UT. She got her BSN also at UT in 2014. She has her CCRN. She has been in the critical care environment for 10 years. She has worked here in the Houston area at St. Luke's the Woodlands Hospital and North Cypress Medical Center uh, prior to the be becoming part of HCA when it was a standalone facility. I worked with you there uh, many years ago. Uh, she has a tremendous passion and an incredible reputation when it comes to uh, understanding and teaching CRRT. She has a, she took a disproportionate number of ECMO patients and I would say she is uh, already an ECMO specialist, uh, but uh, she's gonna formalize that and then go to perfusion school. So I'll talk about that quickly. Uh, but uh, she has a tremendous amount of experience in ECMO and really understands it from a very uh, a, a large uh, field of view. She takes care of the patient from head to toe and everything in between and worked with all of these ECMO patients from our early days of doing it with dual site cannulation to evolution to the single site dual lumen to uh, getting patients up to non-anticoagulated patients on heparin without anticoagulation, integration of CRRT and managing that. And she understands it all and actually does or historically has done a tremendous amount of teaching in the hospital because of her expertise and passion for these topics. She's very involved in education and really loves it, but she also loves her family and actually has one and loves going deep sea fishing. She likes saltwater fishing. Now, I do too, but I never catch anything, so I only go fishing. Are you a catcher or a fisher? Aquarium. Aquarium. Oh, you oh, not deep sea. You have a reef tank aquarium. Oh, those are very difficult to manage. Yeah, it is. They are a lot of work. So you have the live rock and you have the corals and and the little fans that come out. I forgot what those are called. Yeah, heads, everything. Really cool. Do you have some anemones? No, I don't do anemones because I wander around the tank and sting things. You don't, oh, you don't want it to sting things? Because you can get clownfish because they're immune to it. I do have clownfish. Okay. But, but they need sting an... your other coral. Oh, they will? Mm -hmm. Anemones will? They'll move around and kill the other coral? Mm -hmm. Oh, those dirty dogs. They do. They are. That's terrible. That's incredible. Okay, so how did I do on your introduction? Is there anything I missed that people might want to know something about you? I don't think so. That you want them to know? Okay. Well, I am going to tell you this. Vicki is planning on going to perfusion school. As you all well know, we have been enduring some level of a shortage in the perfusion manpower, woman power, person power um, for the past couple of years. And COVID only exacerbated what was an already existing staffing issue. It's a supply demand issue. Demand is still very high supply really got small. 
Schools are definitely trying to catch up with all of that, and I do think ultimately it will. But of all the people that I know, um, I cannot think of a better candidate for the type of person we want, because I worked with you as a, as a perfusionist and you as a nurse in the critical care unit. I can think of no one more deserving of that opportunity to go to perfusion school and come out and practice, because I think you will be a very positive influence on our industry. So I do uh, compliment your, your, your goals and uh, am very humbled that you're willing to be here with me today and go over this issue of recirculation because it's a big problem. It is. I think you've seen it. Okay. So let's go ahead and jump into my slides. Anybody that's listening that knows Vicki and wants to say hello to her, um, uh, please feel free to do so. And I will get started straight away. All right. Oh, making full string. Yeah. Okay, we good? Okay, so recirculation, a vital sign indicator for VV ECMO patients. So let's just get into kind of what it is. I have no disclosures of any sort. The slides were generously shared by Transonic. A lot of the slides of theirs I liked, and I adapted uh, them, and some I used for my, uh, purpose, for my purposes. So VV ECMO historically is used for patients with severe respiratory failure, not responding to other conventional modalities such as the ventilator with all of the various different things you can do with the ventilator to try and not injure the lungs but still ventilate and oxygenate the patient. The VV ECMO of course is done when cardiac function remains intact and the hypoxia, the level of hypoxia, and possibly even hypercarbia, must be addressed. Can't just leave it like this any longer. Recirculation is a known, a well-known complication of VV ECMO. Ultimately, you want as much blood from the reinfusion post-oxygenator blood to go into the right atrium and transition directly through the tricuspid valve into the right ventricle and then out to the pulmonary circulation as oxygenated blood. Ideally, you would have 100% of the blood coming to the, through the cannula into the uh, uh, pump, out the pump, through the oxygenator, and then back into the patient. That's never going to happen. You can have 100%, but it's usually because you're grossly hypovolemic and there are other problems, so it's not going to be a very stable run. You're going to have some mixture of it. Indications that recirculation is occurring have historically been left up to the specialist at the bedside to determine, and we use various things which we're going to discuss to infer that recirculation is occurring. What I want to draw your attention to here is this is a dual cannulation technique, and that's in fact what we're going to be using today for the simulation. So dual site cannulation, femoral vein has transitioned uh, the catheter here, which is your access into the inferior vena cava 
somewhat close to but inferior to the uh, junction with the right atrium, obviously. And you see here blue blood being sucked into the access. The return is coming in through the right IJ and it's entering uh, either at the SVCRA junction or just a little bit into the atrium. Uh, and where these cannulas are positioned, and I'll show you, will make a huge difference as to how much recirculation you have. And you see it represented by the red blood coming this way. But you also see a little purple line right here, purple arrow. And that is representative of part of this now arterialized blood going down into this cannula, mixing with this venous blood and going back. And that is being stolen from what would ordinarily be going here. So you have mixed blood. And this is actually going to be purple as well. Excuse me, let me turn this off. Thank you. VV ECMO cannulation configurations, we have all seen this many, many, many times, but this is dual site where your access is in this femoral vein going back to the contralateral femoral vein. And in this configuration, you want your return catheter to be higher, superior to your access, because of course the normal flow of blood is that direction. So we all understand that. Here you have femoral venous access with the uh, tip of the catheter somewhere in the hepatic IVC area, maybe a little further north than that, going through the pump, through the oxygenator, returning to the right IJ with the tip of the cannula in the position of the uh, uh, low SVC, SVC RA junction, or maybe just into the right atrium. And then here you have the single catheter dual lumen, single site, uh, where you have your access ports down here at the tip and proximal and your return port somewhere between those two and hopefully positioned at the midpoint of the right atrium with an angle pointing down towards the tricuspid valve. So two single lumen cannulas, this is Femjug. Drainage cannulas resides uh, in, the, uh, in the IVC, RA junction, reinfusion enters. But what I wanna show you about this is the closer that these are to each other, the more likely, because this is flowing this way, and this is flowing this way, so there's a good chance that blood that has been oxygenated will make its way down here, depending on a variety of factors. And distance between these two is something that will definitely affect that. Here is a uh, typical radiograph, chest x-ray, and you see the tip of the return cannula here, and you see the tip of the access catheter here, and you see that the distance between these is very short. In this scenario, you are going to have significant recirculation. This needs to be pulled back a little bit, and this needs to be pulled back a little bit to have a much better outcome 
with this particular uh, 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 cannulation technique. These are just simply too close to each other and will result in much higher recirculation. You always want to check your x-ray to confirm the position of your cannulas. Now, the advantage that the Crescent has, the one from MC3, which is um, uh, which is uh, distributed by Medtronic, is that it has some great radiographic markers on it. The Avalon, not so much. But you, there are other ways to tell where the trend, you can see where the tip is, but there's ways to tell where the outflow is, and it has to do with how the dimension, the size of the cannula changes. That's maybe a different topic for a different day, but x-rays are great for being able to identify the position of your cannula a lot better than uh, one may think. And yesterday, I did a lecture on the use of only a portable x-ray machine for the insertion of a double lumen cannula, which can be done if you don't have a fluoro bed or fluoro capability. But I thought it was a very good, very good lecture. Here you have the bifemoral cannulation, right? You have your access inferior to your return, because obviously if this was your, if this was your access and this was your return, you know, and the blood flow is normally this direction, you could see where that would be really a bad thing to do. So it's very important that you make absolutely sure your access cath, your return catheter is much more superior than your access catheter. The problem is if your access catheter is too low, you don't get very good drainage. In this particular uh, example, you can see that it's infrahepatic, and that sometimes makes for drainage uh, to be a little bit more difficult. Um, and so this technique works, uh, but it's you know doesn't work quite as well as the dual lumen single site. And sometimes that's not even enough, and you need three. You need another cannula site. Sometimes you need two ECMO circuits altogether. Here is a radiograph of what I just got through showing you. And let me try to blow this up a little bit. Yeah, that worked pretty good right there. So here is the tip. I'm going to circle it. And here is a tip. And then I'll zoom back out of it. So you can see the two tips of the cannulas, this one being your access, this one being your return. And so anything draining from the head, you must understand, is not going to have any opportunity to be treated and oxygenated. So if you have zero lung capacity on a relatively large patient with high metabolic demand, uh, that's going to be a really tough a situation to uh, to be able to oxygenate and ventilate that patient artificially uh, very effectively. So this technique does work, uh, but it really is highly dependent on the size of your patient, whether they're on paralytics, whether you can afford a drop or two in temperature, and whether or not they have any native lung capacity at all. And by the way, if there's anything, like in the middle of it, you, you want to interrupt me? Just interrupt me. Okay? okay. I don't know if I didn't tell you that, but anybody can. They will. They'll, they'll, they'll call in and if you're making a mistake or say something or they want clarification. Okay. Uh, the double lumen cannulation, this is an example of it. 
and you look here and you can see that your drainage ports are in the superior vena cava, very nice. Your uh, drainage ports are down here in the inferior vena cava, right about the level of the hepatic vein. So your tip can be uh, any, you know, basically we would refer to it as the hepatic IVC. Uh, and your return is here in this double lumen technology. And what you would want to see is if you were doing bicable view TEE, you would see a high velocity jet going that way towards the tricuspid valve. Now, again, depending on the size of the cannula, the size of the patient, the overall cardiac output, the lower the cardiac output, the easier it is to actually capture more and more of their volume, the higher their cardiac output, the harder again that becomes. And there's ways of diagnosing that uh, with the tool that we're gonna talk about here in a little bit that's getting to the point of what is recirculation? How does it happen? Why does it happen? And sometimes recirculation occurs even when you have the absolute perfect cannula position, but it's still going to happen and be significant, and you don't understand why, but there are reasons why that happens, and we're going to try and explore those today. Um, if you remember what I told you about, you can tell where the uh, point on the x-ray, this is an x-ray with an overlay, so you see up here your access in the SVC. You can see that's the SVC because here is the reflection right here of your right atrium. And then obviously it's very clear where the IVC is. So you know that this tip is down into the IVC. But what you're looking for is as this cannula is coming down, you'll see that this red portion, which is the double lumen, terminates at this hole, which is your outflow. And that down here, because that doesn't exist, it is now a thinner cannula. So if I go back to that previous x-ray, no, not x-ray, this previous drawing, I'm sorry, get rid of my markings, you will notice that, and this actually happens much closer to up here, this is not the best drawing, but there's that divot right there occurs. So you would see it on x-ray as wide here, and then all of a sudden it's narrower here. That is the point where that hole exists. And so on an x-ray with an Avalon, if you don't have markers, you know where your outlet port is based on what the heart shadow shape is and know if it's in the atrium, if it's too low in the IVC, if it's too high up in the SVC, it'll give you all of that information. You really can't use it because it's two-dimensional for rotation, but it'll give you an idea of position. The crescent cannula will give you an idea, even with a two-dimensional x-ray, of whether it, the cannula has, is rotated correctly or not, which is very useful. Let's look at some of these cannulas. Here you see it in the right IJ, stabilized with some sutures. Um, I can assure you this is not uh, secured enough 
for long-term ECMO, and this will eventually work its way in or out and become uh, rotated. In fact, it's partially rotated right now. You can kind of see that is turned in a, if you were looking at the patient's face, it's turned in a little bit of a clockwise angle. Uh, but let's talk about these. This is the Maquet Dual Lumen Cannula. I have never used it. This is the Avalon Elite. I have used many, 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 many of these. The, uh, and in fact, uh, let, me, let me do this. The Origin, I have never seen, don't know anything about it. And then the Covidian Dual Lumen, I have never seen that either. I hope I have a picture of the Crescent, but I don't, I don't know that I do. So let me get rid of this because I want to show you all something. I'm going to bring this up and make it a little bigger. I guess that may be as big as I can make it. But you should be able to appreciate a difference in size from here to here. And that difference in size is what you would see on the x-ray. You're draining here. You're draining up here. You're returning here. So what are some of the clues that we look for? Well, if the patient's arterial saturation is going down as what this red arrow demonstrates, and your pre-oxygenator saturation is going up from wherever it was, well, you gotta start thinking to yourself, well, why is that happening? It is a clue that there could potentially be some recirculation. But there are other reasons why the patient's arterial saturation could be going down and other reasons why your pre-oxygenator saturation could simultaneously be going up. And what is up? How much higher? Mm -hmm. are, you, are we running serial uh, uh, pre-oxygenator blood gases on a routine basis? Um, obviously, if both of them are just red, one of two things has happened. The patient is no longer extracting any oxygen, and that really is the color of their blood, or the, uh, there's massive recirculation and there's no tolerance. Sometimes it's very obvious, but sometimes it can be somewhat subtle and you sure. don't really know. The patient's hemodynamics may have changed. Their volume status may have changed. Contractility may have changed. Their activity level may have changed. Their level of, you know, the, the paralytics may have worn off. Mm -hmm. They may be on pressors. They may have an extraction issue. We don't know. There's a lot of reasons this can happen. Their lungs may have improved. Their lungs may have gotten worse. There's a lot of things that can affect this and to just look at this and say, this is how I determine recirculation, I think it limits you to being able to truly understand to what degree you have recirculation. There's no way to quantify it. You just know my pre-oxygenator saturation has gone up and my patient's saturation has dropped. It likely is recirculation, and maybe it likely is, but how much recirculation is it? Recirculation is a big problem if that is what the problem is. So if we look at this graph here, what it's showing you is the, as the flow is increased, the amount of 
uh, I'm sorry, as the recirculation is increased by increasing flow, which is flow and recirculation, your effective flow plateaus and eventually starts to go down. So you increase your flow to compensate for a lower arterial saturation, but as you increase that flow, you are increasing your percentage of recirculation simultaneously, which for a while will increase your effective ECMO flow, it'll plateau, and then you will actually lose effective ECMO flow. So for a, turning up the RPMs, turning up the flow, whenever you see your arterial saturation not where you want it to be without exploring the possible causes of it, not the best way to treat that. You really wanna understand why are my arterial saturations coming down and is increasing the flow going to help me or potentially hurt me? So you're at max RPMs with little increase in SAO2. Your venous and arterial ECMO lines show similar coloring. Patients' oxygen saturations remain low. Mixed venous saturation monitoring reads high. Patient requires similar amounts of inotropic support or more prior to cannulation. Patients' NIRS monitor readings are suboptimal. Arterial blood gas PO2 remain low. Our ventilator settings remain elevated and on 100% oxygen. How is VV ECMO helping this patient? Clearly not. Clearly not. So this device uh, made by Transonic, known as the ELSA meter, is a dual flow measurement and it does it by transit time indicator dilution technology. I'm not about to explain how all of that works or even what all of that means. I just know it works and gives you a number and it is FDA approved for this purpose. In fact, it is recommended in ELSO's recommend recommendations to use during both VV and VA ECMO because it does two things in one and actually three things in one and I can explain those three things as we move forward. You give a sal saline basis, uh, uh, give a saline bolus to the ECMO circuit to determine the recirculation percentage so it quantifies it. Flow sensors acknowledge difference in velocity to quantify recirculation measurement. Allows for data-driven informed decision-making at the bedside. So I believe in this device I uh, uh, found it and got, have a great relationship with this organization. Again, I have no financial interest whatsoever in this. Um, it, it is all purely my belief in this product. What are your thoughts and your experiences that you may have had with, before we had the device and then we got the device? Um, the device itself has made it tremendously uh, easier for us to provide the information to whoever the critical care doc is that day. Uh, before this, we would end up, like you said, so many different variables, and uh, I kind of end up supporting the recirculation, so to speak, mm -hmm. um, where maybe you're losing valuable time trying to figure out these other reasons why your patient was doing good, and now we're going back up on vent settings. Um, possibly having to re-paralyze them, things that we otherwise could have been progressing towards a, a window. Mm -hmm. um, but this gives us a way to say this is the problem. We actually have 40% recirculation mm -hmm. and it 
makes it easier for us to get it taken care of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, tremendous help. I know you and I have worked together. I just wanted to get your validation on this if I can. But working together, we we actually I remember identifying that there was a big problem, big time recirculation. We got a chest X-ray immediately, mm-hmm. and if you remember that patient, and they had the uh, the uh, Avalon catheter, or the dual lumen catheter had migrated into the RV. Remember yeah. that patient? I do. And uh, and it was really we knew something was wrong, but what? Now we could have just done the chest X-ray, but you know you're in there at the heat of the moment you're trying to figure out what's going on we could shoot this found very high recirculation and we were like well there's something seriously wrong here get a chest x-ray and uh and that really helped us a lot and it also really helped to you know get the surgeon who or the cannulator whomever it may have been because we could give them an objective number We're not making this up that this looks like and we think you need to. And not only that, but while he is manipulating, he or she is manipulating the cannula to a better position. We reshoot it before they secure it to make sure it's where it needs to be. I found that to be very useful and during insertion, very useful. Uh, to make sure. And of course, there's other benefits to it, which we we, we can go on to discuss. But basically, this is what it does in this particular case. I don't want to get into the woods with all the weeds, weeds with all of this. But you see a very high recirculation of 41%. So you're flowing 3.6 liters per minute for this patient, but they're only receiving 2.15 liters of effective ECMO flow. The rest of it has been recirculated. So you're, that is your true, so if the patient's cardiac output, we'll just hypothetically say, is four liters. I'll make it four liters. We're, in this scenario, actually treating a 90% of their cardiac output. But when you take the recirculation into consideration, we're only treating 50% of their cardiac output. That's a major difference, big difference. One bolus recirculation measurement. I think they have like a little video here, but basically what happens is you have to give the injection between the pump head and the oxygenator. Um, This sensor sees two things. It sees a velocity change from when you do this injection, and that's how it measures oxygenator blood volume. Hmm. Okay. How it measures oxygenator blood volume, and then it passes through this sensor as a first pass, and you see this red spike, which is it's sensing the uh, saline bolus that you gave. It's a density change, and then it goes back into the cannula and whatever comes back through the cannula without going through the patient's uh, vascular system and capillary system comes back very quickly to here and is picked up by your blue spike here and then it does its calculation and gives you a percentage. Um, Clinical relevance, optimization of pump flow for best ECMO treatment delivery, subtraction of recircle Recirc allows for calculation of effective cardiac flow, so we know what that is. Um, I would call it effective ECMO flow, not effective cardiac flow, because it's not the effective cardiac flow. The heart's 
the heart cardiac this is not measuring the patient's cardiac output though that's something that they are looking to be able to do with this same device optimization of cannula position absolutely to improve treatment delivery identification of potential low volumes very very true and a really good sign of potential cardiac failure we're going to talk about that because you can have recirculation of 50 percent and have the cannula in absolutely perfect position you can never make it better than 50 percent and that is a sure sign of something we can uh, discuss the exact opposite if they're super hyperdynamic too you would have zero recirculation. zero recirculation anytime i tell people this all the time anytime when using this device if you see a zero recirculation or less than five percent the cannulator is not that good they're not that great it is a hyperdynamic heart and we can discuss that why that happens if it is very very high despite perfect cannula position it is a sign of right heart failure and you will the cardiac output is diminished and so if you're flowing four and a half liters five liters to the ecmo but the cardiac output's only two and a half liters there's going to be a lot of recirculation because the blood's just swirling around and you're just picking it right back up again did you want to discuss um the uh uh that point about hyperdynamic heart i think this might be a good diagram to do it with and uh you can go ahead and take that portion of this and explain why does a hyperdynamic heart even with suboptimal cannula position give you a zero percent recirculation so uh, definitely something we've seen more through covid with the younger patients on ecmo uh, their cardiac output could be 10 uh, and your ecmo flow four so uh, we're literally just pushing straight past the cannula. It's got nothing but the patient's blood available to it uh, and literally zero recirculation. Yes. It's going faster than we are. A lot faster. I've <laughs> seen cardiac outputs of 15 liters in some of these patients. And you're flowing four. Four. <laughs> and so there's no time for recirculation to occur because it's just washing down through the valve so fast no opportunity for it to come back exactly and i know that just makes so much sense but if you don't do this you haven't thought of that it's a good little and you know a little little pearl to take home with you right and you end up with the same problem if you have that much cardiac output you're really only getting 40 percent benefit from correct ecmo correct so you got to slow it so down slow it down <laughs> Esmolol, we didn't even talk about how to deal with it. Mm -hmm. You can give Esmolol if the blood pressure will tolerate it. Um, and that's probably the best way to that's do it. That's what we went to. But sometimes in those patients, even with Esmolol, they still have a big time cardiac output. They're still severely hypoxic. And at that point in time, you're having to make decisions. Do I add a cannula? Do I add a second circuit? Do I cool this patient down some? Do we have to go back up on sedation? Do we have to reparalyze them? Uh, all of those things have negative consequences to them, but if you're hypoxic, there's only so long you're gonna last that way before you start developing multi-organ system failure. So you have to do what you have to do. Um, to get those patients through that. Anyway, this technology was introduced by a guy named Kravitsky. He's been here, a uh, super nice guy. Uh, he's a, a brilliant uh, PhD type doctor. 
uh, and uh, he published this in Asayo. He's had over 200 papers in measuring uh, various different things for hemodialysis, ICU, and ECMO. He, they measure, they use transit flow time monitor measurement for doing coronary graphs, aortic graphs. You can measure the health of your fistula. There's all kinds of things that they do. He is, he is a flow measuring kind of guru sort of guy. That's his focus. Uh, and an incredible, from what I understand, incredible tango dancer as well. Okay. Measurements are easy. It takes uh, one saline bolus and one minute to do. And you see that example there. And we use uh, sodium chloride. Uh, basically, you need something that has a different density, a fluid with a different density than the blood. So it's usually a uh, 0.9 sodium chloride. And uh, it, you know, in adults, we use 20 cc's. I think it's one milliliter per kilogram for children. Um, they have a book on that. We don't do kids. I don't do kids, so I really can't speak to that. But in adults, now you don't want to do you know, if you're really dealing with somebody that's that has a volume problem, um, you know, you do five of these injections and that's 100 cc's, right? So you got to be somewhat, you know, respectful of the fact that you are going to give the patient a 20 cc bolus each time you do one of these uh, things. So you don't want to do 10 of them when you're trying to get 100 off that patient for that hour. And now I have to get 200 off of the patient for the hour just to be even again and not even get the 100 I wanted off. Is that a question? Um, say that again. You got a question? We have a question. Max flow on a dual lumen. I didn't see it. You want to say? I can't. Oh, what maximum flow can the dual lumen cannula? Well, that's a great question, and it really depends. They come in a variety of sizes. Uh, from very small for pediatric to very large. So in adults, we generally, and it depends on which brand you're using, whether it be uh, the, uh, the uh, Getting or it be the Medtronic MC3 Crescent, uh, there's 27s, 28s, 29s, 30s, up to 35, I believe, 33 for sure. So French, so, and of course that's divided into the two channels with the larger channel being the access, the smaller channel, of course, always being the return. Um, but uh, you can, I have, the most I've flown in one cannula was about six liters, and that was a 31 French Avalon I got six liters out of. Um, uh, five and a half is generally about where we're going to be. I've put 32s or 33s in people with the uh, with the crescent and didn't need to flow more than five, five and a half, but it flowed just fine. So, you know, and not always is the bigger cannula going to give you the better flow. They do have a graph that will give you what their flow characteristics are, flow pressure relationship. Um, sometimes, though, if you put too big a one in, and it's up against the wall of the vessel or if the vessel isn't plump for whatever reason from being patient being hypovolemic you get a lot of interference in that flow a lot of uh and uh and cavitation so i would say for a standard adult 27 you're going to expect a flow of four and a half liters for a 30 you're going to get up to five liters 
and 31 and for a 33 you're going to get up to up to six liters five and a half is probably more realistic i think those are about the numbers hopefully that answered your question <laughs> additional technological value so if you look at this oxygenator do you see anything wrong with it and i'll let you all take a look at it Anybody? Anybody see anything wrong with that oxygenator? Anybody in the studio audience? It's square. It's square, that's the first thing that's wrong with it. Isn't that the truth? Who said that? You get a prize. Finally, somebody recognizes that there's nothing in the human, nothing in the human body that transports blood that is square. Okay, doesn't happen. It absolutely doesn't happen. So. It looks like basically a normal oxygenator. There's nothing wrong. Maybe you see one little dink there, and you see a little dink there. Really nothing to write home about. And if you were measuring pressures, probably wouldn't see much in the way of a pressure issue. And of course, as we've moved away from using anticoagulation or limited anticoagulation, but in some cases, no anticoagulation at all on our ECMOs, um, this is a very important thing to appreciate. But if I took this oxygenator, which they did, this very oxygenator, as you see it, and open it up, that's what's in it. They washed it out, and this is what they found. A lot of clot, and this is on the patient side of the fiber bundle. So not only can you measure oxygen, the uh, recirculation, but in VA ECMO, you would have no recirculation, obviously. obviously. But in both scenarios, you can measure oxygenator blood volume. And when you first start off with your system, you have a wide open oxygenator that has not yet been exposed to blood. As soon as you go on ECMO and you're running with a few minutes, you shoot a, a recirculation and oxygenator blood volume, or if you're VA, just an oxygenator blood volume, and you will get a number. And that number you set, so this would be, let's say this was a 220 cc oxygenator, that would say 220 cc's. But then four or five days later, you come back and you run another recirculation or, or another, whether it be recirculation or just oxygenated blood bond, depending on, your, again, whether you're VA or VV. And you find this, you have recirculation at 16%. I probably would be hesitant to want to do anything with that. But this is now becoming a concern. You're at 88%. There is absolutely nothing that will cause this number to go down other than clot. It won't be styrofoam. It won't be popcorn. It will only be clot. That's the only thing that can obstruct uh, internally in that fashion. So you now know, hey, I'm losing, I'm getting clot in here. It's at 88%. Should I change it? patients really unstable, don't think they would tolerate it. Um, we may need to increase some anticoagulation. We can increase anticoagulation. I'm gonna monitor this a lot closer. I'm gonna check this by the end of today and if I see any significant difference, 
I'm going to have to change it, or the next day we're going to have to change it, whatever the case may be. But it gives you a real good indication that your anticoagulation either is or is not being effective, or you're, that you are developing clot in your oxygenator. Troubleshooting cannula placement, we've talked about that. Single lumen cannulas, dual lumen cannulas, it's very good for that. Identify optimal RPMs and ECMO flows. Obviously, you can increase the flow, but that does not necessarily mean you will increase your effective ECMO flow, right? So if your patient is hyperdynamic, you're flowing four liters a minute, they're effective, uh, they're recirculating 50%, um, and you go up to five liters a minute, how much is that going to help you? None. Probably not. None. If their cardiac output is, let's say, two liters, and you're flowing four liters, and you go up to six liters, how is that going to help you? Four liters recirculated. It's just going to increase your recirculation. That's it. Your effective ECMO flow is not going to change. Here we see uh, a various different tests done um, looking at optimizing. So at three uh, liters, there was zero recirculation. Effective ECMO flow was three. They bumped the flow up to 4.8, almost 4.9. They had 23% recirculation but only, so a, a, a 1.8 liter increase in flow netted you 700 cc's of increased effective ECMO flow. Here at three, uh, 5,800, uh, 5.8 liters, they had a recirculation of 32%, so another liter increase, and yet you only had a 200 milliliter, 220 milliliter increase in effective ECMO flow. So you could see that by increasing flow did increase your effective ECMO flow, but not in any way proportionally because your recirculation uh, kicked in and uh, stole some of, that, some of that volume. But if you needed four liters of effective ECMO flow, I would still do this despite the 32% recirculation, though I would prefer to understand why, and if it was nothing more than a slight adjustment of the cannula positions, which would bring this down and increase this even higher than what it was I needed um, just to get by, I would be happy with that. Hypo or hypervolemia. Here you see a patient with very high recirculation. Uh, they give the patient uh, fluid resuscitation and your recirculation dropped to eight. That's because the cardiac output was depressed in this scenario. Cardiac failure, you see very high recirculation that uh, remains and no RV failure as you uh, resuscitate the patient, the recirculation goes down. If any time you see high recirculation, despite having uh, what looks like good cannula position, always consider to get a bedside echo. You're gonna likely find right heart failure. That's not an uncommon phenomenon with patients with ARDS that are on ECMO, especially when they have high uh, really stiff lungs, high, high ventilatory pressures. 
realization of recirculation by quantifying recirculation, VV ECMO patients, you have a quicker response time, quicker response leads to improved oxygen uh, to the patient, improved oxygen delivery patient increases the overall goal of VV ECMO. Not necessarily the outcome, but certainly reaching your goals. And thank you, I appreciate that very much. I have concluded my lecture portion. Any questions, comments, concerns uh, that you may have for me? Criticisms? <laughs> no criticisms. No, not yet. That's great. It was good. Would you have done anything differently? Yeah. Anything you want to add? No, that's good. Very no? Good. Okay. Do you want to shoot a recirculation and teach people how to do it? Yeah. Okay. So mm -hmm. I'm going to make my way to the green screen. Vicki is going to go over to our patient. And aren't we, gonna, aren't we offering a prize for something? Oh, <laughs> yes. Okay, so. Strange things about the dummy. Yes, yeah, so if you, if anyone can identify something that does not belong, and it's not a camera or anything like that, obviously <laughs> the cameras have to be here, but you have to identify something that just doesn't really belong. They, you win a prize, and Vicky chooses what that prize will be. You get to pay for it too, so pick wisely. <laughs> no, we have some cool t-shirts and hats okay. and we have stuff to give away. We okay. have cups, cups, perf web cups. We have perf web, uh, what are those things called? Insulated. Um, yeah, it's a, no, it's a, it's a cup that's insulated like a, but it's not real big. It's like a wine cup that says, so you put coffee in it or whatever. We have some cool stuff to give away so they could win something. You can say whatever. So if you, anyone picks out, good morning. Hey, what's going on? Nithin from yeah, India. What Max? Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, we got some feedback from people. Um, okay, so you have to find you have to find the thing that doesn't belong. Okay, I'm going to the green screen. You go over there, and do you want to take? Is it all disconnected, or are you gonna? I have it all disconnected. Research line open. Everything kept. Oh no, but you have the probes still on. The probes are on. Okay, so let's. You want to you want to leave? You want to just simulate putting the probes on? We want to pick a new patient. So I thought maybe we would just start from scratch. Okay. So do you want to just? Uh, how you want to just? turn it off and then turn it back on and kind of go through the entire process. Okay. Okay, let's do that. Okay, so David, Vicky's gonna do that over there and talk about the uh, machine and I'm just gonna sit right here for the time being. I'm sorry, oh, the camera view is perfect. Looking for the power button. Sorry. It's on the side, yeah. There we go. It's kind of in a weird spot. Okay, so, and then David can show that, that monitor. Can you go to the monitor that she just turned on and then she can kind of go through the process. So that's the transonic ELSA meter. It's booting up. Mm-hmm, takes a few minutes to do all of that. This is one of my favorite things during COVID. Say that again? One of my favorite things all through COVID. 
Really? Yeah. I know. It's a. I'm telling you, it 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 should be a standard of care for anybody that uses ECMO. I truly believe that. If you provide ECMO as a therapy, you should have this. Okay. So you get get it on, and then mm -hmm. you would. Uh, add, I think we're going to do the add a patient. Add a patient. Mm -hmm. And we'll just call him. You want to call him uh, Bob Rob? <laughs> we can do that. With Rob being the uh, last name. Yeah, Bob first name. And Bob being the first name. And ID whatever you want to make it. One two three four. Okay. Oh, patient already entered. I did that. You uh, already just, have a just, Bob Rob? No, just pick a different uh, medical record number. I've okay. done one, two, three, four, five. All right, we'll just go backwards here. I've probably done that too. No. There we nope, go. Nope, you got it. Okay. okay. So there you go. Now you want to measure patient. Okay, right here. And you're going to do VV ECMO. Mm -hmm. And we're going to measure both. Yes. Oh. Mm -hmm. So those are your options. And now show everybody on camera what that is asking for. So okay. enter tubing volume between injection site and oxygenator. So David will have to change the camera so you, he can, you can show her. There you okay. go. So approximately the distance between where your probe is at and your oxygenator? No, it's the other way around, remember? The injection site. The injection site in your oxygenator? There you Sorry. go, yeah. So sh go ahead and pick that up. So pick up the injection site and then show that length of tubing that goes to the oxygen. So that section of tubing, and we've kind of decided that that is probably going to be um, uh, 20 cc's. I've not measured it, but it's pretty close. Pretty and close. it just wants to take that into account for measuring the oxygenator blood volume. That's why we put that number in there. Okay. So whatever number you put in there, you have to make sure you use the same number. Exactly. Okay. Okay. All right. So now, uh, what do we do next? So now you would put your probes on, which you've already done. Okay. Got an arterial line, approximately 12, 14 inches away from the oxygenator. Uh, we'll pick up the fluid as it comes out, going to the patient. And then... Oh, I think it's under the drape. Yep. And then um, approximately, I guess, 20 inches from the patient going back to the oxygenator. So to... discuss very quickly your cannulation technique for this patient. This is dual site, right? Mm -hmm. We're draining from the, uh, the left femoral. Left femoral. And returning to the... Right IJ. Right IJ, mm -hmm. which you can't see from here, but that's okay. So it will sense the amount of change coming back from the patient would show how much has been picked up by the catheter. Perfect. Indicating recirculation. Perfect. Now, David, can we show the uh, multi-pack and see the flow and all of the stuff like that? There you go. All right, perfect. And okay. I, I'll go over there. All right, so go ahead and talk them through it. Okay. So we got the probes in place. You want to uh, close your recirculation line, okay? Because it will change your value. 
Now that recirculation line, just for the audience, is coming from the top of the oxygenator, right? And it is arterialized blood, and it's going back into the access line of the uh, ECMO circuit. So mm -hmm. from the positive side to the negative side. And yes. we use that bridge for uh, adding CRRT or something else to our circuit if we need to. Yes. And that has to be off, right, in order for us to do this uh, experiment. Now, turn that back on for just one second. Okay. Open it just, back up. I just want to see how it affects the flow. So you notice the flow changed a little bit, 4.2. So go ahead and close it, and I think it goes up to 4.38. Okay. Let's see what it does. So 4.4. 4.4. So a little bit of a difference, a couple of hundred cc's. All right. Go ahead and, and, and continue with your, your test. Okay. Um, access right here. Right now I'm going to leave the stopcock closed. It's got 20 cc's in my syringe. And then back over here without stepping in front of the camera. We have a ready to measure button. It's going to tell us we're ready and it will automatically sense when the fluid goes past the sensor. Okay. So I have to use two hands, so I just apply a little pressure on here when I open the stopcock, and then a fast flush in. Nice and swift. That was perfect. And then if they watch, they'll see that it'll sense it. There it is. And now it'll go through its calculation process. And we will wait, holding our breath for our result. For our one minute. And we'll know how much recirculation. And if it's, uh, if it's bad, we're going to have to fix it. If it's great, then uh, I'm not, uh, I guess the show will be over. How are we doing? Where, where are we? <laughs> it's not going to be great. I'm really hoping it's not that great. It's not I don't remember. Did I, move the did I move the clamp well enough? Oh, okay, good. So let's see. And it takes one minute. So from the time you inject, it takes one minute. Now I get asked this question a lot, uh, but I'll address it later with the uh, quadrox or the cardio help. Okay. You're and hit and so it's asking you since it's the first time. Do you mm -hmm. want to use this as your baseline mm -hmm. oxygenator blood volume? That's what ox oxbv stands for, and you want to say yes. Okay. So yes. Perfect. There we go. And so there you go. So you're flowing 4.47. Your recirculation is 29%. And your effective ECMO flow is 3.1. But what I want you to look at is you see this first green spike. That's the first injection. And that's where the velocity change was sensed and where your oxygenator blood volume is being measured. This first red spike is it passing through that red uh, transducer you put. And then as it comes back, because of the recirculation, there is your blue, and that's your recirculation curve. Then as it goes out through the periphery, you see it coming back slowly, and that trails off the, the line there. So that's very interesting. So if we looked at this from the perspective of what's the ECMO showing, um, 
it could be for a variety of reasons. So I think what you need to do is, can you please pull back on the uh, femoral venous? Because we looked at the x-ray and what it's we found was that it was the the access was up too far almost into the atrium okay and so we get our trusty dr matoyer in and we ask him to please pull that back about uh two and a half centimeters and he maybe three centimeters and he does he's mad he's aggravated but we told him what the recirculation was <laughs> we had so, a number for him so now let's test it again with the cannula now corrected just as a side note, this patient with just the 29%, he may actually still be looking okay, vital sign-wise. Uh, and this was one of the situations where we end up just kind of supporting our recirculation number, where we possibly could be coming off of paralytics right now, but we can't wean it down because this hidden recirculation number that no one has caught. Um, maybe he could be mobilizing right now if he had that extra 10, 15% of support. So Absolutely. it's kind of like a middle gray area that we fall into without the ILSA. I totally agree with you 100%. Okay, so why don't you go ahead and let's try to shoot another one. Okay. And now that we made the cannula adjustment, in fact, if, if you, you, we don't have it up on the board right now, but the arterial sat actually went up, which is really good indicative of what's going on. The other thing it tells you is the oxygenator blood volume is 236. Mm -hmm. I didn't even point that out to you, which is what it should be. So this oxygenator is healthy. There is no clot in it. And every manufacturer tells you how much volume the oxygenator is supposed to have. So if that number meets what is in the specifications within a CC or two, you know that you have an oxygenator. And as that number changes, you know as it goes down, that, that, that oxygenator is, is getting uh, thrombus in it, something to be considerate of. So let's try to remeasure re and see if we've made things better. Okay. So I'm just gonna hit my ready to measure button again. And it's very easy to do this with one person. You don't have to have two people. If you have stronger hands, you can just do it with one hand, but I have to use two hands. Right. So I put a little counter pressure on it Open it up, use two hands, smooth injection. There you go. Oh, the research line. I have it closed. Yes! <laughs> Tried to get me, didn't you? Uh-huh. <laughs> I come over here to the green screen. You can get green screen experience. Come on! <laughs> it's fun over here. Come on. But I you, may, you know what, you may, you've been on the edge, all, you, you're living on the edge, come on, come on, come on over to the green screen, Joe's green screen. Oh no. Okay, well, let's watch it, let's watch it together so everybody can oh, see. Oh, there's a slope here. There is a slope. I just got shorter. Yeah, oh, that's okay, I, I did too, I'm short with you. I'm right in the way. That's okay, you're fine. There. What's it gonna be? 12. <laughs> I don't think it's ever 12. It can be 12. It could be. And we've made Dr. Matoyer so much happier. So 16 is one of those places. Are you going to ever make it really better than that? Or are you going to run the risk of making it worse? 16%. <laughs> 
for me, anything under 20%, I'm probably not going to touch it. 15%, I'm definitely not going to touch mm -hmm. it. 16% is really close to 15%. I'm probably not going to touch it because you run the risk of just making it even worse. Sure. And, uh, you know, I think maybe in this case, you could afford to go up a little bit on your flow and maybe that's going to get you over the edge of where you need to be and uh, the patient will do better but that's probably how i would handle it i would have a hard time calling somebody in to adjust that at 16 percent. that's sure. my opinion what say you hey we just were able to go down the vent settings because of uh, oh say he's better yeah so we made an improvement okay very good all right that was good that was a great simulation very easy device to use and you got to remember to reopen the you research have, line. Yep. Do not forget to open the research line because what happens if you don't? Joe finds me and it clots off. It does clot off. <laughs> and I get so frustrated <laughs> because then I have to change it. So let's talk a I'm little bit about um, where we're going from here. Lots of, oh, did anybody figure out what was wrong? What, did anybody find it? Could you see it? You can put up one more look. Okay, like I said, somebody can win a prize. You just have to find what really just should not be there. That pole kind of camouflages it a little. Mm -hmm. There you go. Now you can see it better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's long enough. They got enough of a look. That's it. Don't make it easy for them. Don't circle it. Don't zoom in on it. Okay, we'll see if anybody gets it. So, um, you know, there's a, 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 a tremendous amount of shift in the, um, in the uh, monitoring of ECMO that has gone on over the past... 10, 15 years, and, uh, and ECMO specialists um, are by no means a new phenomenon. It's a standard of care. There's many, many, many places that only use nurse ECMO specialists at the bedside. In fact, there are places where the nurse at the bedside that's taking care of the patient is also responsible, uh, which I think is a bit much. I think that's a little, I think you really need to have, now you can have one nurse or one ECMO specialist and, uh, or perfusionist, whomever, in a unit taking care of a number of patients that are on ECMO, as long as the nurses managing the patient have at least some better than rudimentary basic plus understanding of ECMO, how it works, what it's doing, and uh, how to manage those patients. My opinion, what say you? Yeah, I think so. Nurses can be a lot of extra eyes for you, know when to come and get you if there's an issue, for sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So are you excited? Are you excited about your future endeavors here with, with us? course you know i'm lucky enough that you now work with our group okay so that's yeah i'm i'm i'm, I'm you know i can't tell you how much how happy i am for that i think that again i worked with you for a long time and your your uh your 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 
perfection, I think, is really what it comes down to. You have tremendous pride in your work product. You're going to be a great perfusionist. But what made you decide you wanted to go to perfusion school? Because a lot of our audience are perfusionists, right? So there are perfusionists that are watching this. There may be some nurses out there. There could be some docs out there. But what made you decide you wanted to go to perfusion school? Um, well, I had already had it in mind, but through COVID, definitely uh, just seeing a lot more of it and uh, the whole process with it, the support that can be provided, uh, along with that, the decisions and stuff that go with that, uh, mm -hmm. as far as goals and, and outcomes, all mm -hmm. of it together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Higher level of support. Sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's a, there's a, you know, I mean, we, we both, I mean, as a, as a critical care nurse, albeit you work under the auspices of physicians and orders and all of that stuff mm -hmm. as a equally as a perfusionist we operate on that same level i know they don't use the term mid-level anymore they use uh, something else advanced practice i'm not sure what they call it yeah but the way the critical care units at st luke's and memorial and methodist operate today really the critical care nurse is advanced practice. I mean, there may not be NPs particularly going through that discipline, but there, we operate at such a high level compared to 30 years ago. For sure. It has totally changed. And what's taught and what's known and that experience that nurses that are critical care nurses and have been in the unit for a decade or longer, what they bring to the table having seen this so many times and understanding it is just so invaluable. And I think transitioning from that into perfusion is going to be uh, very, I think you're going to do very, very well because so much of what we do, most people in the hospital, including the surgeons we work with, have no idea. They don't understand because it's not what they do. Sure. They kind of know, they sort of understand. I mean, everybody kind of understands. Mm -hmm. But of course, I'm not a surgeon, right? I can only understand so much of what they do. I do understand, I can't do it, but I've watched a lot of it. I kind of know what they're supposed to, I know what they're going to do before they actually do it. But it doesn't mean I can do it. Right. Um, perfusion is, is, is a unique skill set and uh, we're an enigma in a lot of ways to a lot of people. Sure. Um, but uh, but the things that w one of the things that are our biggest strengths are is the ability to figure circuits out. We're uh, and I hate to say this, but we're plumbers. <laughs> we're expensive blood plumbers, <laughs> but we're plumbers nonetheless. And that's what we do. For sure. You know. So anyway, with that said, any, uh, anybody, did anybody figure it out? Nope. Nobody figured it out? Should we tell them? Sure. Okay, David, zoom in on his head and, uh, and just bring it all the way in there. Nobody got it. Or nobody wanted to win a prize. Maybe they did get it. Mm -hmm. Just zoom right in. Our patient is smoking a Cohiba. He's taking his ET tube apart and he's smoking it and blowing the smoke right out the tube. There you go. Thank you, David.
Okay. Good job on your first program. Good work. You feel clammy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it gets easier. It gets easier as you go. Thank you all very much for joining us. Remember, next Saturday, we have our special program. I want to bring that up to make sure. And we've, we've sent out uh, invites and stuff, right? Notices? Okay, yeah, I would like to send out some more. If you haven't gotten one already, you, you should be getting one soon. And let me see if I can make this uh, come up. I'm on the wrong Wi-Fi as usual. It's always something. Oh, you got it up for me? Thank you. Um, I can't read that, David. Thanks. You're so kind. You're so kind. Here, I, I, I'll get it up. There it goes. I can't read it either. Yeah, here. Oh, shit. That's all right. Okay, uh, here we are. It's going to be PerfWeb special program, The Kidney. And we've got uh, Dr. Louis Navarre and Dr. Kultni Superporn. Um, and they, she is coming from Thailand via uh, Brown University and Tulane. And Dr. Navarre, again, is at Tulane. And uh, Kimberly is going to be here, Kimberly Sperlin as well. But we're going to be talking about normal renal physiology, renal autoregulation, effects of CPB-associated physiologic alterations, hemodilution, hypothermia, or temperature changes, loss of pulsatility, uh, inflammatory, you name it. And then what is AKI and ARF? There's a lot of definitions out there of what they really are. Whether you're looking at the STS database, you're looking at the rifle criteria, you're looking at uh, Cadigo, there's all kinds of definitions of what is AKI and ARF and what does it mean clinically. Really what matters to me, AR, A, AKI and ARF are very common. Does it lead to dialysis? That's a big problem because when it leads to dialysis, you have a big problem. How to protect the kidney from cardiac surgery-associated injury. Dr. Navarre giving that lecture, which I think is going to be incredible. And if you have AKI, how can you mitigate its progression? And Dr. Uh, Superporn Tabby, as she likes to be called, will be discussing that with some open discussion. So that is next Saturday from 10 to 3 p.m. Uh, if you'd like to join us live in the studio, you are welcome to do so. Reach out to me uh, and I will give you directions and tell you how to get here. And uh, otherwise, we'll look forward to seeing you online for this uh, really neat program. And then our next program will be out in November, towards the end of November, just before Thanksgiving. And that I think that's gonna be our last one for 2022. So you should have been able to get all of your credits this year, all of the ones that you would need for your ABCP certification. Uh, as always, all of our education is free. Uh, for you to watch and to learn and participate. You only pay should you need that CEU certificate. And we're gonna be opening up the uh, this to nursing soon where we're gonna be able to provide nursing CE credit and do it in a way that is live, interactive, uh, 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 informative, evidence-based, and um, uh, I think uh, very, very, very useful for our critical care nursing colleagues. Again, thank you all very much, and I'll see you on Saturday. Peace out.